If you just end up being more stereotypically masculine, you will attract some subset of women. But there are plenty of women that enjoy the more ambiguous dandy who is happy and is comfortable with feminine energy. And those might offend someone who's really trying to be more masculine. So whenever you're asking yourself, am I masculine enough? You're simply bringing up to your consciousness one of your insecurities. Mm -hmm. And it would be better for you to explore why you're afraid that you're not masculine enough. You're listening to The Big Asian Energy Show, where every week we interview Asian experts, move makers, and ceiling breakers to uncover their secrets to success so we can help you reach your greatest potential. I'm your host, John Wang. Let's dive in. As an Asian man, it has always been a bit of a question to me, what does it mean to be defined as manly or masculine? Because it seems like it's a little bit different from an Eastern standpoint versus a Western standpoint. On today's episode, we have Dr. David Tian, who's not only a certified psychotherapist specializing in men's work, but also the host of the Masculine Psychology Podcast. On this show, we talk about the psychology of what it means to be masculine, as well as his own journey moving from an Asian Casanova to struggling with mental health to finally overcoming all of it to discover what it truly means to be a man. Dr. Tian has held multiple fellowships from Harvard University, from Princeton, U of T to McGill University, and has trained 10,000 people from over 87 countries. He embodies the psychology of vacation energy. It's great to have you, Dr. Tian. Welcome to the show. In Asian, why should we not talk too much about what is masculine and what is calling into it? It's a great question. Actually, I didn't think we'd go this way. It's pretty deep. Let's say that you're insecure about whether you're a man, whether you're masculine, mm-hmm. and then you sit around think and trying to figure out how should I be? So then you're thinking, oh, masculinity means that I will be tough. It's like performative, externalized identities of right or the ego masculine. Got it. So let's say you end up being masculine. So now you're more masculine than you were before. So what? Yeah. What are you going to get out of this? You're, you may be yeah. more women, more money, right? So it would be better if you just ask yourself, how can I get more money? How can I get more women? Because the answer for those might not have to do with being more masculine. It might have to do with being smarter or working harder, or which aren't specifically the domains of men. And same with even getting more women. If you just end up being more stereotypically masculine, you will attract some subset of women. But there are plenty of women that enjoy the more ambiguous dandy who is happy or ending is comfortable with feminine energy, wearing a scarf around his neck or something like, or loving silk or wearing pink to spice up his wardrobe. Those might offend someone who's really trying to be more masculine. So whenever you're asking yourself, am I masculine enough? You're simply bringing up to your consciousness one of your insecurities, and it would be better for you to explore why you're afraid that you're not masculine enough. That could try to actually become more masculine. Yeah. I think you just described a phase I went through in my entire closet just right there. And <laughs> look, I just got these glasses on a trip just from Singapore a couple of weeks ago. My wife picked these out. My wife was like, you look more like a therapist now. Is that the intent? Were you trying to get yeah, like there now? Yeah. But I kept resisting. I put them on, and then the more I look at myself, like I can see myself now in this, I do look like a therapist. This is weird. This is not masculine. I'm not the Masculine Psychology Podcast. I should have a buzz cut, camo, that gun. What did I do with this gun? But it's an interesting topic because now that we're diving into it, we do culturally focus so much on the external trappings of what defines masculinity. We think it's about how we look. Like when we think masculinity, we think, do I look masculine? Like guys, it's a funny thing. Like I said, I facilitate these men's groups. And when we talk about this, you'll see guys just, and they'll suck in their gut a little bit. And it's very subtle. It's not like conscious. They'll like puff up their chest a little bit as soon as somebody mentions it. But what is the masculine and what is the feminine then? So you could lay out what are typically masculine energies or traits 
and what are typically mm -hmm. feminine energies and traits. And that might be helpful just to understand where you lie on that spectrum of masculinity and mm. femininity and then where you would like to be more. And if it's an insecurity about masculinity, which is by far the more common for men, then that's interesting in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Wherever you happen to lie on that spectrum is where you happen to be. And if you are really confident in yourself, which is a masculine trait in the stereotypical way, you should just own it. Now, I know that in terms of the dating data that Asian men are considered to be less masculine and their code word for less attractive physically, sexually to women in the West. So if that's the concern or if that's the background issue for the insecurity about being masculine enough, then that's something we can address separately from the bigger yeah. question of what is masculine and feminine. Let's dive into that. I think you pulled it out is that Asian identities of the masculine does not always look like Western identities of the masculine. I hear that on women reflecting they don't feel like Asian men are very masculine. Who, which women are saying this? That's important to it. Western, definitely, because Asian women seem to have no issue with it. Not oh, universal. Uh, I can't speak every single one. Popular band right now is feminine looking Asian men. This is full of that, right? Yeah. And here's the question, because exactly what you said, there's a different cultural definition for what masculinity looks like, what femininity looks like, because in that nation, that culture has a different definition. BTS, as you mentioned, fairly, is typically not seen by the West as being particularly masculine. And yet, I would dare you to ask any of their female fans to we, suggest to them yeah. that they're not manly enough, because I wouldn't dare. Right. Now, there is a Western figure named Prince that had a similar kind of dandy persona. Yeah. And he was incredibly sexual. Oh. So the only element that is really missing is the flaunting of the sexuality. But mm -hmm. they're really close to that. And there are plenty of Western women that were going crazy for Prince. Oh, yeah. Elvis. Elvis was seen as feminine when he- Oh, Elvis. Exactly. Yeah. 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 The gyrating of his hips. Oh, my God. Back then, yeah. I was like, oh, only wits of feminine. <laughs> they try to shut it down. Yes. So there's a movie so, made about it, yeah. So there's a worry among Asian men that, first of all, you're not like John Wayne or Rambo. Yeah, you could become that way. And there are plenty of guys who get jacked, learn how to become action heroes or Navy SEALs. In Jocko Willink's company, there was a guy named Johnny Kim, I think his name is. He was a Navy SEAL. Then he went on to be a Harvard medical doctor. Oh, yes. Yeah. Now working for NASA. It's like the <laughs> ultimate Asian parent's dream. That's, yep. I remember seeing that and I was like, oh, man, I think my parents just died a little inside. So you could become like stereotypically more masculine too. You just get right. more muscular and so on. So there was on YouTube, Six Pack Shortcuts was run by Asian guys. Oh, yeah. That's right. And, yeah. So that actually did a lot to help break the stereotype if you just see their ads or whatever mm. that Asian guys can't look this way. And of course, even before that, there were plenty of Asian guys who were totally ripped, especially in Korea, and they were on social media. Oh, they weren't seen in the West because of the way the algorithm works. Is it a cultural issue? Is there a systemic part of this as well? Or do you feel like it's just the way that we are conditioned or culturally taught to express ourselves in the West, right? Like when we are, as Asian men, the way we are conditioned to express ourselves is a little bit more modestly with humility being one of the values I grew up with, certainly. I remember growing up, my parents, that was like the biggest thing is be humble, don't speak up too loud, don't question people too loud, et cetera, et cetera, which is very much, again, culture here. Masculinity is a lot more complex than being loud. So if you just, in your appearance, and maybe the sound of your voice, yeah. sound like just looked imposing, then you wouldn't have to say anything. It doesn't even have to be cultural expression. I have a friend who owns a bodyguard company in Thailand. He was telling me that the bodyguards that are the most dangerous are the ones that you wouldn't notice. 
these are the special forces guys who are like five, six. But if they wanted to, they'd take your kneecap out in a second and, and you'd go. So they have a set of bodyguards that can absolutely kill. And then they have another set of bodyguards that are blown up dolls. They're basically like the intimidating looking big guys who take up a lot of room, but they don't really know how to fight. They don't know how to use a weapon or anything, but they're just big guys. And the ideal bodyguard, what do you call it? The bodyguards that they would give you would be a mix. So you'd have some for show, and then you have some in the back. Okay, so who's more masculine? The big dude who's intimidating looking, but can't do shit. Or the little guy who's like a ninja and is just going to take you out, but you wouldn't even see him. Masculinity yeah. can encompass both. So what is it that you're after, guys? That's the, That was the whole point of my, I don't know, ramble about cultural differences going back hundreds of years. What is it that you want? Which type of women are you trying to attract in the first place? Now, there are some women who grew up in Idaho. I don't know. I'm going to name some kind of farmland. Nebraska. <laughs> and they're going to be looking for a cowboy, right? They're going to be looking yeah. for all-American dude. Right. And if you happen to be Asian, it will be harder for you because you're not white. Right. She's been dreaming about white boys her whole life. She's never even had sushi, okay? If that's the woman that you want, you're going to have to change it up. You're going to have to go incognito yeah. and you're going to have to whitewash yourself to some degree and you're going to have to fit in. And then at some point she's going to be like, oh, he's also Asian. Isn't that interesting? And then, right. But you can't lead with that. If you come in like <laughs> giving her, telling her orange chicken isn't really Chinese food, she's going she's gonna to be like blowing her mind. By the way, orange chicken, what the hell is going on there with you? That's all I see in every single like Panda Express, all that shit. Anyway, so. It's not Chinese food. I like it though. I yeah, totally acknowledge I'm ordering it. I'm like, I can't get this in Asia. I'm going to get it now. I try to explain my partner, my girlfriend, she's white and she loves it and she loves orange chicken. And I've explained to her, so this is not Chinese food, but I'll eat it with you because it's awesome. Sweet and sour chicken. That was it. Love sweet and sour. Okay. Well, there is sweet and sour. There is sweet and sour. Okay. Okay. So if your girlfriend's white, you understand this whole issue of what are you aiming for? Who are you yeah. trying to impress and why should it matter? So I was like, bring it up. It really depends on the type of woman that you would like in your life. If you are dead set on killing it in Nebraska or Tennessee, <laughs> you can have to change some things. Whereas if you want to rock it with the girls in Seoul, you can go more, you can be free to be more Asian. And a lot of what we consider to be masculine are absolutely culturally defined. And even I can easily problematize this for anyone on a moment. Just think about if the ability to kill someone with your bare hands is considered masculine. You can easily point out fighters that can kill you with their bare hands and you look at them like, this guy's not a fighter. He's so skinny yeah. and short. Yeah. And then you see a big guy who, who doesn't know what he's doing yeah. and gasses out very quickly. And it's really about what she grew up with, the stereotypes she saw in her formative years around puberty get set for a while. Like It's amazing what we end up fantasizing about as being traced back to our formative years. And we have this fetish around it. And most people don't realize that, but it's so specific to the individual. I want to hear more about this because as soon as you bring up fetishizing and such, I'm immediately curious. Oh, so let's say a girl grew up and she loved her dad and her dad was a loving dad. Sure. And every morning he shaved the traditional way with a straight razor. Yeah. And she heard this or walked by and saw this. And he's there swishing his water with the thing around. He's the smell of the shave. She grew up with that. Mm. And she falls in love with a guy who shaves with a straight razor, and she doesn't know why, but it reminds her of something. If she was self-aware enough, she'd be conscious of it. There was a woman that I met who was really into this guy, and he was a jerk to her, and she couldn't figure out why she liked him so much. But every time they met, he wore this leather jacket. Mm. And then after asking her enough about it, she remembered, there, there's this TV show she grew up in the 80s with uh, these two dads, and there's a sitcom with two dads, and one of the dads always wore a leather coat. And it was just like, so I, we pulled it up on the phone, and was like, it looks just like this guy's leather coat. Uh. 
And it's just that period in her life where she's fantasized about this dating a guy like that. And it just triggered this unconscious connection. So are we all doomed to find these elements of our parents, especially that of the opposite sex? Are we all doomed to find that attractive? Oh, you're going to the parents. Okay, I was bringing up like sitcoms. And... Oh, I don't know. Cause you <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. The, the parents, yeah. But you're right. Those are much more about fashion and the outward externals. And now that you move into more psychotherapeutic issue, the what we're attracted to with the dynamic with our parents isn't going to be how they look generally. That's pretty rare. It's how they make us feel. And when we start to sense unconsciously or parts of us sense unconsciously that this woman is going to be like my mother, like demanding or whatever it is that the <laughs> dynamic is with her. Let's say it's the Sarah dynamic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty common for Asians. Oh, yeah. Sure. Demanding and never satisfied. <laughs> then we get excited because this is another opportunity to right the wrongs. This is what Gestalt calls unfinished business. Mm -hmm. We get another chance to resolve the issue. And this is happening unconsciously. How it will play out is if you'll be together, if you also trigger something similar in her, some way you resemble some family, some parental dynamic for her. And then you'll stay together. At the beginning, you'll be really excited because you have this opportunity to finish the business. But you'll eventually disown in her the energy that you've disowned in yourself in order to deal with mother or father. And you'll do the same to each other. That's why these relationships are doomed. Unless they become aware of the dynamic and they can heal the original wounds and they can finish that business, they can resolve the childhood issues, then they'll be able to see each other with clearer lenses, at which point they can make the choice to continue to love each other. I love that. That was way more wholesome than I thought you were going to go. No. <laughs> okay. That was great. Good. Yeah. Good, good. But it's interesting because I know that your work has been very much deep in the mental health work, right? Like you're an IFS therapy practitioner. You have background in DBT, CBT, ACT, NLP. I, I could keep listing three-word things for a while here. But it's interesting because when I checked out your website, one of the things you teach is actually dating coaching. How did that happen? How did you get into that? I got married at 24 years old as an evangelical Christian to another evangelical Christian. And we didn't know what the heck we were doing when it came to marriage. And eventually that marriage fell apart. We separated and then eventually divorced. At which point I was coming into my 30s while doing a PhD in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And back then there weren't a whole lot of Asians. And the dating pool that I was interested in were the attractive women because I'd also lost my faith around that time. I'd left church for philosophical reasons. So as a former apologist for the Christian faith, I took to heart the point that if there is no God, there is no right or wrong. There's no good or evil. It's just evolution. And I missed out on my 20s. I didn't party. I didn't drink. I was a good Christian. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm going to make up for this shit because there's nothing else. I'm just going to die. And then my body is going to decompose and that's it. So I better get it while I can. I had come across... Now, the only reason I had this thought that I could get more is because I happened to meet in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It was a center for pickup artists at the time. And that year when I was separated from my wife, Neil Strauss came out with his book, The Game. Yeah. Which is sold like millions of copies. And I read it in two days, the whole thing. And could this be true? And it turned out that the person who recommended it to me was himself the co-founder of one of the largest pickup companies in the world at the time. No way. So I was like, I was doubting whether it's true. And here he is, he's doing it. His name is, he goes by Christian Hudson. So anyway, I got roped in there. I was like, okay. And then I learned this stuff, this pickup yeah. artist stuff. And looking back, a lot of the reason it worked, the ones, the parts 
parts of it that did work. A lot of it didn't work for me. Parts that did work worked because I think the girls were like, this guy's cute. Look, he's trying so hard. So it wasn't, gonna... wasn't the strategies of the line. No, I can't. I'm thinking it's because this routine worked. Man. Yeah. Jesus, this guy's cute. He just, yeah. he's trying so hard. Yeah. And this, he's fun. I mean, he's good for some good fun. So I did not recognize my own value at the time oh, yeah. of, you know, that I could be a good person and that I've, yeah. I've done all this stuff in my life. None of that mattered because I was more insecure about my masculinity. I was insecure about my attractiveness. So I would just basically do whatever I was told by coaches. Wear this, wear that, say this, say that, and mm -hmm. just do it. Yeah. And then eventually got good at it. I started a blog on the side that was private, like a blog spot blog. This is mid-2000s, right? Yeah. And then eight people were had passwords through it. <laughs> and then eventually they're like, you got to share this. So I opened it up to public and then... For the first month, no one else read it. And then it got shared on a bunch of these aggregate blogs that like basically were blogs that just shared other blog posts. So that got shared on that. And then it grew from there. And people were seeking me out for to hang out, basically to just shadow me, get free coaching. Yeah. And eventually got too unwieldy because there were like 12 guys following me around. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm not going to tell anyone where I'm going anymore. And I'm going to charge you for it. So I started putting up, just hung my shingle on the blog nice. and did coaching. And that was all leading up to finishing the PhD and then becoming a professor. And then I had my day job was as a professor of philosophy, specifically Asian philosophy and moral philosophy at the National University of Singapore. And then I was moonlighting as a pickup coach. So yeah, that's how that happened. And eventually Eventually, the second month as a professor, I met a reporter who wanted to break the story. And I was so in my own frame, like I had no shame about anything I was doing. This is evolution. I'm not doing anybody harm. I'm not hurting anyone. But uh, it didn't look good for the university that on the sun. Oh, paper, yeah. I was on the cover of it. The headline was, he snagged 30 girls in two months. And then the, the inside <laughs> actual story is three pages long. And that was quite good. It was quite a fair story. But the headline really killed me. And the dean of the University of Arts and Sciences called me. Actually, the chair was mostly driven by the, my chair. We had a meeting on the Monday with the dean, and he's like, you're going to have to lay off on this. We're getting some bad publicity from this. <laughs> I'm like, what? What do you mean? Okay, fine. <laughs> and eventually came to a head because they wouldn't let me continue to do this. You got to pick one or the other. I kept going right on the edge of that line. I could still blog, but I couldn't advertise any services. Oh I couldn't sell. Yeah. But I was still helping plenty of people, and I just felt like if I had to choose, I'd make a much more meaningful impact in the world as a coach. They started to see it wasn't just helping guys get dates and succeed on that or get laid. Mm -hmm. I was helping them find their own power, mm -hmm. their confidence. And, yeah, their value. And I was actually leading into real relationships. And that was a lot more meaningful because there were guys at that point, three years into coaching where they were sending me photos from their from the hospital for their first baby or something like that. Oh, wow. Uh, guys getting married. There was a wedding where all of his best men and groomsmen were all like students of mine. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, whoa, I just basically fielded this whole wedding party here. So I was like, that's cool. So I quit the professorship yeah. job and then went full time into that. And then eventually I followed that as far as I could and it became quite empty. And I realized empty I was in making- Emotionally empty? Like fulfilling? Yes. It wasn't fulfilling. And that was because I had basically become a codependent narcissist. It was the term I use is compensatory narcissist. I had compensated for my insecurities by taking on the traits of a narcissist. And there's been research that shows that men who exhibit dark triad traits generally have more sexual partners. Dark triad is the three of psychopathy, Machiavellianism, and narcissism. And as you get better at just pure dating, like just getting laid, flirting, that whole thing, it's actually more effective if you, for the short term, and especially in bars and clubs, if you take on traits that are consistent with, like basically cluster B personality disorders. Jeez. So that bravado that you mentioned, <laughs> Anthony Tate, is that his name? Andrew Tate? Andrew Tate. Andrew Tate. <clears throat> Straight up, cluster B. Yeah. So you just act like a jerk, but a funny jerk. 
with a heart of gold. That's the winning combination. And then you look as good as you can. All this. I just remembered. I'm like, that was right. That's a great tagline. Yeah, cocky funny. That was this whole double. Oh yeah, cocky funny. That's right. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. That's oh man, that's a big callback. Yeah, the guys I first trained with in Ann Arbor, they had a sweet funny, not cocky funny, but. They're all different permutations of this, but yeah. So then narcissism makes it so that you can't actually experience love because you're acting out of your insecurities. You're compensating for the belief that you're not enough or worthy for love. And you keep doing all of this stuff so that you can prove to yourself that you are. So every attempt to prove it proves that you aren't. Right. So was that developed because of the fact that you were learning to be this like Casanova in dating and then you just started sleeping with more women and then because of that, you started feeling, oh yeah, then that fed into the ego or were elements of that kind of already there in the shadow before you started that journey? Oh, absolutely. The latter. The further you get into psychotherapy, the more you realize that everything has its roots in childhood. I'm writing a book right now that hopefully will lay it out more clearly in my case, telling like my story going back to childhood. But I think there's a lot of resonance with many Asian Americans and their way of compensating isn't to get laid or to get a lot of sexual partners. It's to make more money or to climb in status or to achieve better reputation so that their parents will finally be proud of them and they'll be enough for their community, their Asian American or Asian community. And that's driven a lot. It's this drivenness coming from a belief that they're not enough, just the way they are. So my way of dealing with that was not monetarily because I was a pretty a devout Christian. So I'd already gone away from a lot of the materialism, but instead it was me as a man. And that a big part of that is how many sexual partners you have. Plus it was just fun because that was like the sin and the lust that I denied myself. Yeah. So I swung the other way. Yeah. But it turned out it wasn't about sex for me at all. It was about status. It was sort of status anxiety is something that pervades most Asian and Western. The insecurity about whether you're good enough for the world, whether you're going to get that respect sure, and whether you achieved enough to be proud of yourself. So that was what was underlying it. And it was that women would be attracted to you if you were a higher status. So I unconsciously used that as a marker for whether I was winning on that score. Because once I jettisoned the professor class, then that actually freed me up to now, because I actually even became a professor as a kind of missionary. It's a longer story. But I dropped all of those motivations, this idealistic world of the mind, the life of the mind and all that. And instead it was like, I'm only here because of there's totally random things that created this world, the Big Bang and all this stuff. There's no meaning, there's no God. And so I better enjoy it while I'm here. And that actually was the outer motivation, but the deeper motivation was still driven by, am I good enough? Am I worthy? And that has to do with how am I worthy in relation to others, in comparison with others? I want to pause this here. Because I feel like I have certain expectations of where this conversation might go. But if I didn't have a background in doing this extensive work that you have on yourself, and it sounds like therapy was a big part of this and understanding and going back into this. At this point, I might look at it and go, what's wrong with that? Isn't that a good thing to make more money and be attractive? What is wrong with having the motivation to pursue that? And alternatively, is the intention just to work on myself and how I don't want that anymore? If you enjoy your work and that's why you do it, Mm. then that's great. Like you enjoyed your life. Even without, there's no God, there's no meaning, there's no right or wrong, good or bad, good or evil. But you are having a good time doing it. Hey, and you're not hurting anyone. Power to you. If, however, you're staying up late to study for your math exam, not because you will the math, but because you need the A so you can get into medical school. So finally, your mom and dad will be proud of you and you can stand in front of your family and they will like applaud you. And that's the thing you've been waiting for all your life, for your mom and dad to finally give you a hug. I know you Asians don't get that. And your mom and dad to tell you, 
we love you, son or daughter. Okay, I know you don't get that. Good luck with that. Because that's what drives babies. That's what drives us as children. We <laughs> want love. We want to yeah. feel loved. Like we're yeah. enough for that. Like we don't have to do all of this stuff in order to be enough for it. Now, mm -hmm. I'm sure there are things that you do just for the fun of it. And if you get paid for that and that's your job, that's awesome. And I have nothing to say about that. Then it's really difficult to be able to tell whether they're driven by any kind of insecurity around that. Maybe you're not. Maybe it's just for the love of it. That's what I try to live my life now. Mm -hmm. I ask myself why I'm doing something. And the moment I'm doing it, I'm not enjoying it anymore. There's a great time to go inside and check to see why I'm still doing it if I'm not enjoying it. But if you're enjoying your work, then that's a totally different. But it's when you notice that you're tortured behind it. So if you enjoy flirting, if you enjoy putting on nice clothes and, you know, who doesn't? Right? That's great. Like, I don't purposely try to look uglier. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with sure. taking care of your body, taking a shower so you don't stink. That's great. But you probably enjoy those things. Right? So doing so things, you're doing an enjoyment of it rather than to compensate for an external validation for that. Or to compensate for a deep insecurity that drives you to do something you don't enjoy, but you're doing it because you think it'll make you good enough. So how do we get over that insecurity? Therapy. Good therapy. Good therapy. What you do is you, you go to find the parts of you that are holding these insecurities. So it's not the adult you is just playing out the inner child. You've done some of this work, right? The adult you is playing out the dynamic or the burdens that your inner child took on when he was five years old or whenever it was back then. And the only way to heal that is to go back there and help that inner child let go of that burden. And there's a whole process around that. And this is a delicate process and it shouldn't be rushed. And that part of you that wants to rush it or just fix it, or just make me whole, make me powerful or good enough. That part also needs attention because that's coming from some deeper wound as well. And it's like those Russian doll things where you just keep finding deeper and deeper layers to it. And so what do you teach in your dating programs? That's obviously, guys, if you're listening to this and you're interested, go to the full program. But what's the messaging? So I'm curious, now that you've gone through all this healing and you still have courses on dating and relationships, how does that differ now in what it is that you teach? Dating and relationships are two separate things. Relations, I have a relationship course called Rock Solid Relationships. It was initially made for men, but a lot of men have gone through it with their wives and girlfriends and mm. they loved it. Good relationship advice is also good psychotherapeutic advice. So the relationship itself is the best place for you to discover your hidden or exiled inner child parts. Because mm -hmm. the more intimate the relationship, the more likely you will get triggered in it. If you haven't been triggered in your intimate relationship yet, it's not intimate enough or you just haven't been together long enough. Eventually, you will know just those things to say to really egg that person on really hurt them. And in those moments when you're just really angry, you're going to splurt that stuff out. Those are the wonderful opportunities that most people run away from for transformation and growth and so forth. Now, for the dating, I had made plenty of dating courses before I discovered psychotherapy mm -hmm. that basically were about strategies, tactics, techniques. 90% of it, at least, are still fine. I have a dating product. It's called Invincible. It's targeted towards men. It's more mm -hmm. men. And half of it is psychotherapeutic. It's psychotherapeutic in a kind of CBT, and it uses plenty of NLP in it with guided meditations. If So I've tried to market it as what it is, half psychotherapeutic, half dating strategies or understanding what's happening when it comes to flirting and giving fashion advice and that sort of thing, and body language and tonality and eye contact. And it doesn't sell well. So if you mentioned therapy to dudes, it's just like crickets, right? Not yeah. So what we had to do is to lead with the dating stuff. Right. And we sneak in there in the sales page that half of it's psychotherapeutic. Uh, and we I plainly say, when I tried it, 
on people doing psycho ideally it would be psychotherapeutic material first and the dating material it'd be a and then b yeah a lot of guys didn't have the patience to stick it through stick right. through the just, just tell me what to so, say what is the one right, right. liner that will make her want to drop exactly. her panties right now exactly so then i learned to alternate it so one week of more psychotherapeutic stuff one week of this more strategies and that alternation was a good rhythm and i explained that in the sales page but we definitely lead with the promise that is more of a dating-oriented one and benefits and all of that. Yeah, that's the dating product. Now, it's like a benevolent bait-and-switch is what I call it. So, like, they come in for dating advice. <laughs> they come out with this newfound confidence and fulfillment in life and love for themselves. And I sneak in some inner child work in there and there's plenty of timeline therapy, all kinds of things. Come out of there, like, loving themselves and loving life. And, oh, yeah, there's this girl I'm dating. And it's just so happened. <laughs> yeah. And then the next thing they'll need to learn is how do you succeed in this relationship that you found yourself in? I'll have another course for that. And it just leads them through that whole thing. So they get Trojan horse into doing therapy before they even realize. Exactly. Trojan horse. So do you think that most men, this is a tough question, right? Because when you said you started going through it, a lot of it wasn't about the techniques about moving from A3 into whatever stage or whatever. <laughs> oh, yeah, the mystery right. method. Oh, man. Yeah. I explored that world when I was younger. Yeah, there was a time period. I actually ended up starting. There's a guy in the group, sorry, in the community. I was living in Montreal at the time. I got into the pickup scene a little bit, and I ended up working with a guy named Zan Perian. He had a- Oh, he's on Manian? Yeah. He is all over the place. He wrote a book, actually, about, I remember, it, it took 10 years for him to get this book. I'm so happy to see it out, because at the time- Times that we were working together. to read that. Yeah. At the time that we were working together, he was talking about wanting to write the book. And it ended up being the exact title that he kept. He never changed it. It's called The Alabaster Girl. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 So I have some familiarity with it and then my journey also. Zen is an interesting archetype. Like he's definitely doing that wandering, the way that Johnny Depp yeah. plays his character in many movies. Yeah. This is like this artist. So the yeah. masculinity question as applied to that particular type of person, that archetype, is also one that the answer isn't going to be stereotypically masculine like it is in American action movies. So that's another great example for how it could be effective while bringing in a lot of feminine energy into the mix. It's a good point. But anyway, you're going somewhere with this. I was going to ask, yeah, I was going to ask, how did that lead into what you're doing now? Because I understand you're writing a book right now, you're creating new products all around the therapy element of it from the mental health perspective. How did this coaching kind of led to that path? I got to a certain point where I had all of my dating goals fulfilled and more. And then the what next was, I guess I should get into a relationship. And I got into one that around the four-year mark, it was exclusive by then. And she went on a trip with her girlfriends. And then I found out she cheated on me on this trip. And that was the first time I'd ever experienced that. And finding out in a kind of devastating way, because when I confronted her about it, she went off and she just basically went off and went back to this guy who was just, I guess they stayed together for a couple of months or something, and just posting nonstop all the time with the two of them kissing and all the stuff. Oh my and God. at that point, if you think about how much status anxiety I had, how much of that was driving, how much of this insecurity was driving my desire to become better at pickup and dating and all this stuff. You can see how devastating it would be if it was public. Not only am I betrayed in terms of this relationship, but even worse for my compensatory narcissist self. She was parading this on Facebook, Instagram, whatever. So I just hid in my own little cave for a while, but I became basically suicidal because my whole point in life was just pleasure. That went away pretty quickly. Pleasure satiates very quickly. And then it was the status-driven thing. Status is relative to people. So you can't 
feel like you're somebody of status unless you compare yourself to others, unless you are thinking about yourself in relation to how others think of you. So given that was the driving force or value in my life at the time, basically being humiliated in this way, that's how I was seeing it at the time, basically made it so that there was no point to living anymore. Now, I knew at the time that I could build myself up and build it back up again and basically get revenge and become more successful in terms of status in her. But it was going to be a long road. I'd be another two or three years or whatever. Wow. And as I thought about it at the time, and I'm like, what's the point? I just climbed back up to having another hot girl walking the red carpet with her. What's the point? I've already done all that. And it wasn't all that great. It wasn't definitely wasn't worth the work. So I thought, I've experienced everything I've ever wanted. And it was just going to be pain from here on out, like hard work that just to crawl back to where I was, which wasn't even all that great. And then I could be vulnerable to the same betrayal again. So I thought, I'll just go out. It's about time. I don't need any more of this. So I just went up to the top of the Marina Bay Sands Hotel, which appears in that movie, Crazy Rich Asians, at the end. Mm-hmm. That, 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 the one pool. floating on top of three buildings. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then I went to the opposite side, which at the time just looks out on... Actually, Gardens by the Bay was already built then. But And I was trying to... I went through all these different ways of thinking about how should I end it responsibly so I don't kill anyone else. <laughs> and with high... Oh, you were talking so about like, ending it as in suicide. Killing myself. Yeah, I'm oh, describing suicidal ideation. So you're like actually strategizing it in the cold light of reason. If I just jumped from the building I lived in, which was even higher than 57th floor, I go straight down to the sidewalk and I might land on somebody that would suck. So things like that. So I'm like thinking one of the best ways is to go skydiving and then just not pull the chute, but then no one will let me have my own. I'll be a tandem diving. So that's not work. I went through all of these different ways of doing it. the least painful and maybe the most exciting because at least you get a view when you're going out kind of thing. So eventually I tried to do it. So I got all this courage up. It took me a whole night. I was just like, for hours, it was like, and it was a lot harder to do. I discovered all these anti-suicide prevention things that they built into the fucking building. I have to clear this huge, th- <laughs> I have to climb through this forbidden area and then what get onto the beat. Yeah, man, making it so hard to kill myself. <laughs> Damn, I didn't know this stuff was there. These damn modern buildings. And all of this time allowed it so that I was sending these cryptic texts of, I love you, man, farewell. I was thanking all my friends, the few of them that meant that I thought were really good friends. And they were all overseas except one at the time. And he got this text and kept calling me. I just kept ignoring his calls. And then eventually I called the girl and the ex and the dude picked up the phone and that just woke me the fuck up like i was in a trance ready to jump and i just wanted to give her my last goodbyes and then guilt trip her and then die yeah of course this guy picked up and he's like what are you doing like the fuck me i was like holy shit that anger came in i'm like okay that saved my life because another angry parts hell no wait no we're gonna not going out like this yeah, but this guy's voice in my ear. And then that just around that time, my friend came running up and found me and pulled me back. And then he was sitting in my, basically lived in my living room for two weeks because all the other friends put him on suicide watch. And then the, from that point for the next 12 months, I basically went on a bender, like trying to figure out if there's anything worth staying around for. I tried like just all the sexual pleasure, any kind of pleasure really, traveling a lot. And eventually I ended up on a motorcycle trip with some friends who were all pretty good riders, but I sucked. Like <laughs> The head rider took me out for a six hour closed course kind of training. And then when I did my figure eight on this motorcycle, he's you're good to go. Great. <laughs> no, and it was in Vietnam, right? So Hanoi, we pull up. <laughs> as soon as I get out of the alley, it's insane, right? I'm like, I realize this bike is much bigger than I trained on. And 
there's like people passing me with chickens on the back of their bikes. Sometimes this chicken once flew right in front of my face. I'm like, and then there's like people carrying wood, like steel beams on the back of their bike and they turn and so I had a steel beam come at me. And this was just the first, I don't know, two hours getting out of the town. Second day, I got into a head-on collision with this villager. The village descended. Basically, he took all the cash I had and then we still wanted to come after us, but we got the hell out of there. I thought, I almost killed this villager, despite oh, the fact that he's they took all my money, but I felt pretty bad about that. <laughs> and I was like, if I could die on this trip, there's five more days of seven hour rides yeah. and I didn't want to kill somebody. And we were on these mountains, we were carving through these mountains and I thought, I'll just go out on these mountains. These are beautiful mountains and the sun was setting and I could just go right off into the horizon and is into this beautiful gorge, like 3000 meters down. And maybe I'll, I won't, I don't know, won't feel much. I, I tried to get up the courage every turn and I couldn't. Now I'm like, fuck, what a pussy I am. I can't even kill myself. It's so pathetic. And then this thought came to me that I wanted to see my goddaughter grow up. And it was this little girl. She was two years old at the time. And I literally just wanted to see her grow up. I would be happy to give her all my money. I would be happy to support her all I can. But I don't even need any recognition. I don't even need her to acknowledge that I'm there. I'd be happy to even Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible look from afar at his wife. Yeah, the death. Now, I'd just be happy to see her. I just want to see her blossom. And I wanted to be able to give to that. And it was just this feeling of love for flowing out of me that kept me turning. And I realized that is the only thing. And that is enough. That's the sufficient cause for me to stay around. Wow. And I'll just stick around for that. And I might still die on this trip, but I'll, I'll try to pay attention. <laughs> I'll pay attention. <laughs> I'm not going to intentionally die, but yeah. So I ended that trip and I didn't die, obviously. And it was a glorious trip. That love is what kept me going. That's when I went and got a therapist eventually a few months later because I didn't understand it. This, this is so right. weird. Yeah. It's not my own daughter or anything. Now I only see her. But at that time, I was only able to see her like once a month because of my traveling schedule. And yet that was like the highlight of my month or whenever I was seeing her. Love kept me around. Wow. And so then I started to get psychotherapy to try to understand why I loved her so much. Because it mm. defied all the evolutionary stuff. It doesn't make sense from an evolutionary perspective. Which you probably would have so studied as a dating coach. Doing the As a professor of moral philosophy, I also specialize <laughs> in moral psychology. So I studied a lot of evolutionary psychology back then. So then the psychotherapeutic process began around that point. And I discovered that real love isn't what you receive. So, huh. so many of us are desperate for love from some woman. Think that they'll finally experience real love when they can find the woman to love them. But that's just needy love. Real love flows out of you as a surplus of what you already have. It's mm. uncontrollable. It's almost the self-sacrificial emotion of you would give anything, everything. And you would gladly do it. If she were to come, my goddaughter were to come and stab me because she feels like she needed to at that time, I'd just tell her at some point you're going to want to forgive yourself and I forgive you already. Because of this fear of death and a taboo around talking about it, we never learn about what life is. We never learn about the real meaning of life. We live in the sort of drugged out days of just the next thing, the next promotion, the next 100K. But if we paused and thought about why wouldn't you just kill yourself? You're already in pain. And even in all the things that you accrete and work so hard for and go through pain, none of those mean anything in the grand scheme of things. You don't mean anything in the grand scheme of things. And when you can take that in as the truth, because it's a fact, then you'll discover what the point of living is. Why you specifically, not just meaning of life in general, but you, the meaning of your life what that can be. The confrontation of death brings you to life. Wow. So that's when I got into psychotherapy. Wow. What a journey. You had gone from this marriage with this very Christian marriage into becoming a pickup artist slash dating coach on newspapers and having, what was your number? 
Could I ask that? What was your number uh, of women I slept with? Yeah. I lost track. I know some guys who track it like an Excel spreadsheet, which is really creepy. I never really tracked it, yeah. but it, definitely over 200 or something. But. Oh my gosh. So hundreds <laughs> of, literally hundreds of, having hundreds of sexual partners and then going through this deep relationship and the separation and suicidal ideation and then come back and finding out that the real meaning behind it is to give love. That's an incredible journey. When you say the sexual partners part, it's like, oh man, that sounds creepy. That was my hedonism. Sure. And for some people, the hedonism, that was how I made up for my insecurities. For some people, that their way of doing it is making millions of dollars. We all have different ways of expressing that. And what would you yeah. tell yourself back then? I'm curious about that. I have no regrets in that sense because I was just so stubborn and stupid. There probably Probably was no other way for it to work. But I did write what I would say if it was my younger self. I actually called it my younger brother. And I wrote that in the Rock Solid Relationships sales page, which I think is up and publicly viewable. So you can read that there, like a letter to my younger self or a younger brother. And it has to do with relationships mm -hmm. so that at least I wouldn't be so confused why optimizing for pickup or dating or getting laid is not a good way to find a mate for the long term. Like I was saying, these sort of dark triad traits help you to get laid more, but they also attract into your life people who will mirror that. It'll attract into your life women who exhibit narcissistic behaviors and are Machiavellian themselves. You have similar values and those values will sabotage, absolutely sabotage any long-term relationship. It wasn't even love. We called it pair bonding. This is oh, like from gosh. a evolutionary psychology perspective. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, you can't relax on pair bonding. Now, these red pill guys nowadays are so afraid of what they call hypergamy. That's what evolutionary psychologists call hypergamy. And they're basically look, waiting for her to trade up, get to just dump you for the hotter guy, the richer guy, or whatever. And you just happen to be, for this moment, the hottest, richest guy she can get. And then, of course, not just that would be more obvious to them so they could just game that. To them, it was this even scarier thing, which is sexually valuable. The pool boy so to speak, who brings the sexual value. He's going to mm. undermine you no matter how rich and powerful you get. So that's why they say, oh, women will always trade up in ways that you cannot game. And this is their great fear. Guess what? All of those relationships, none of those are built on love. And as a result, you're always going to be driven by fear and insecurity right. and trying to stay ahead of her, that you could continually seduce her at every turn. And uh, yeah, you keep doing that till you're 70 something. <laughs> Just self-fulfilling prophecy because you started a relationship on this kind of Machiavellian manipulative structure, you have to keep manipulating because the other person has been conditioned to respond to it. Yes. It's a great way of putting it. That's exactly right. Yeah. And not only are you conditioning her, you've selected her or attracted her into your life because she is also Machiavellian to start with. So you're reinforcing into each other. And then you create your own little bubble because you spend so much time with each other. And you think everyone in the world is this way and there is no other way it can be. And, and that then that becomes flows. your world because you keep attracting more people who replicate that exact exactly. mindset. Right. It's a rare person who's discovered the real love. Absolutely. And I think that the journey that you went through, I went through something very similar myself. My relationship was a little longer, about 10 years before I had awakening for myself, but it was similar. I met a partner. She has also done just a ridiculous amount of inner work and she was very deep dive. And when we first started, there was a lot of conscious discussions around what that would look like and setting it up. And I could very, as you were describing this, the real love is a love of giving. I didn't really put that together until you mentioned it, but I was like, yeah, absolutely. That was the states that I was always enjoyed the most was when I was just outpouring love. That was when I enjoyed the love the most. Such a funny way of looking at it. Never thought of it until mm -hmm. just, thank you for that. Yeah. Find someone who you love to love and who love to love you back. And that's really the secret. Right? There's one other that might help right at the beginning is that you accept and that you love all those parts of her that even you may not like. So eventually you get into the relationship long enough, there are going to be parts of your partner that you don't like and that you prefer she change or he change. And it 
could be something minor, like he's sloppy or something, or he doesn't clean up this and that. Yeah. It could be something minor, but it could also be something major. Eventually, you'll find some major things. And real love means that you still love them, not just as a conscious act of the will, but also emotionally, just like you might with your child. I always go back to children because it's the easiest case. And I think you're best training yourself to learn what love is like by loving a child. Because then it's pure. You're not asking for anything from them, unless you're a particularly uh, narcissistic parent. <laughs> but you're not asking anything from them. But it, when it's two adults and it's sexual, it's hard to separate out those other elements from the love element. But when you love your partner, even those parts that really annoy you, you would prefer that he or she change it. But even if he or she stayed this way for their whole life relationship, you'd still love this person. If you have a teenage son or daughter who just doesn't want to study, and you would prefer that they studied, <laughs> but you'd still love the heck out of them because they do, even if they don't want to study. I feel like that is an important episode we have to set for another time because that's a whole other tunnel that we got to dive into. This is absolutely incredible, David. Thank you so much. I learned so much, but I also loved how the journey ended up becoming really about love. And that's the center point of it. Before we go, how do our, I think we're going to put our links in there, but I just want to give you a moment here. What is the best way for our listeners, our guests to get to know you or work with you? I have a website called David, URL is davidtnphd.com and you learn all about me there. I have a podcast called The Masculine Psychology Podcast. You get all the episodes there as well. And there's a contact form if you want to reach out and contact me. Go ahead and do that. Look forward to doing that. And just mention where you heard me from. Brilliant. It's amazing. Thank you so much, David, for your very valuable time and your wisdom here. So appreciate Thank you. I had a great time. As Asian Americans, we are as strong as our collective community. So if there's something that you found valuable in this episode, share it with a friend and tag us on social media. And if you like the show, leave us a review and send a screenshot and you might win some big Asian energy merch, which we give out every month so you can go out there and own your big Asian energy.